Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week we'll be talking to people active in the business community and the economy and talking about the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, owner of Recognition PR. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services. Some are featured in this podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. In the studio today, we've Stephen Priestley, Director at Logic Eye, specialist consultants in the construction and industrial sectors. And down the line, we've Samantha Johnson, who is Managing Director at Avalon Homes, a family-run business specialising in luxury homeware, and she also recently acquired Cumbria-based Pintail Candles. And later, my con- colleague Josh will be speaking with the Great North Air Ambulance Service. Well... Hello, everyone. First of all, Samantha, nice to see you down the line there. And Hello. Evan, hi. Hi. Now, by the way, Steve, I didn't mention at the beginning, Samantha's based in Chester in the northwest. Uh, Stephen, you're based, well, you work all over the country, but you're based in Teesside? Yeah, well, I think we're in Yarm. Yep. Yarm, Teesside. That's the posh bit of Teesside <laughs> for people outside of the northeast. Uh, in fact, the, the Yarm and Chester, you know, it's a, who was the poshest? But who knows? <laughs> um, Stephen, the big news in business this week has been about the possibility of the HS2 link uh, being cancelled. The government has maybe thrown some uncertainty over it, speculation mounts and all that. And this HS2 link is, the, what's being talked about is the fast rail link from Birmingham to Manchester. The leads to Manchester bit already bit the dust. Now, you work in infrastructure and all sorts of other consultancy projects. What kind of work have you done in that field? Well, related to HS2, we we worked on the Crossrail project, um, specifically the Whitechapel uh, Crossrail stations. So, yeah, we've seen firsthand that uh, costs can escalate and uh, the sort of sensitivities around what's going on at HS2 right now are, are real for us. We see it all the time. So as consultants, you were there managing the project, were you? Yeah, we were sort of taking a, a lead on the contract management and commercial management of the of those uh particularly Whitechapel Station and a couple of others. So what kind of thing did you do and what kind of uh, overruns or cost issues did you face? Inevitable scope growth, um, complexities with the project that all results in cost overrun and delay. Uh, so we took a role of um, trying to con- control and stem the, the flow of cost overrun and um, get the best possible cost solution for for Crossrail and uh, Transport for London. Now, Crossrail is the um, the big scheme that links across London from east to west. The Elizabeth Line is Yes, that's right. And if you're in the north of England, you look at it enviably and think, well, why couldn't that kind of money be spent up north? Yeah. Um, and that's what the politicians are saying about HS2. You know, we, we should have our HS2. We should also have our links across the Pennines uh, because London has got Crossrail. Did it run late? Did it run over budget? And has it become fit for purpose? There's no doubt it's a great product. I was on it just a couple of weeks ago, and I was, you know, proud to have been part of it. But yes, it was there was there was overruns, um, quite significant overruns. I think that's quite well publicised. Um, it almost sort of comes as part of the the makeup of that type of project. It's a fast track. They're trying to get things moving in tandem with design. So inevitably, you see cost overruns. Um, we saw that firsthand on on Crossrail, no doubt about it. To what extent, we, without naming names or 
or shaming people. What kind of issue was there that caused the cost overruns? And was there a deliberate nudging by contractors? They, they maybe, the, the thought that maybe a contractor would price low but charge high. Uh, possibly. I think it was more to do with the complexities of the project, though. Um, and you'll see that on, on HS2 as well. As you know, he's, I think some of the sort of threats to, to that project is as it comes into London and the complexities that that would bring with multiple use stations, for example. Um, I don't know too much of the detail of HS2, but some of the complexities that we saw on Crossrail was where you'd have London Underground, London Overground and Crossrail all trying to operate out of one station. So those live services had to continue which caused out-of-hours engineering and mm. that type of thing, which has inevitable cost implications. When you look at HS2, the 10 years ago, maybe longer, 13 years ago, we were talking about a cost to the taxpayer of £30 billion. It went up to £42 billion. And then we're talking about, although it hasn't been published at £100 billion, the speculation it's going to be £100 billion plus. Um, and you've got now, as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who looks loves the numbers, which I suppose isn't advice when it comes to a leading politician, but he's bound to say, come on, what's happening here, isn't it? Yes, but it would be difficult to see the justification for the project or without the Northern Link, wouldn't it? I think that's that's the the bit that we would struggle to understand as the viability of that project without that connection to the North. Um Equally, as the North, we'd love to see that kind of investment made our way, wouldn't we? Um, which we don't see, and it's uh, I appreciate it's scalable, but if that was to be rechanneled, we'd, it'd be great to get a part of that, wouldn't it? So in your gut, if you were around the cabinet table, you've been a consultant, actually around the table talking to contractors, would you fill at this project or would you let it run, even though it's overrunning? Given the level of spend that we've seen already, it would be egg on face, I think, to a degree if it was cancelled altogether. Um, and I think, you know, that kind of investment in infrastructure globally or, or in the wider UK context has got to have some benefits to the North in general, or might it might be indirectly. Mm. I think I, I think it I think it'll continue. To be perfectly honest, I just yeah, to what extent we don't know. Is there an element of the fallacy of sunk funds? You've put your money in. You've put so much money in. You're convinced you have to put more money in or you'll never get any money out. Rather like playing those tipping point games in the arcades at the seaside. You want to put your money in until the pennies tip over and I want more. It will be on the minds of people making those decisions. There's no doubt about it. It's, uh, I don't even know what the spend is so far, but it's it's got to be substantial just to get it to to this stage, so mm. there, there will be a bit of that, won't there? Yeah, we'll come back to you about your business in a minute. Samantha, you run an entirely different kind of business to Stephen. You don't have necessarily the technical knowledge he has about cost overruns and so on, but there you are, a small business based in Cheshire, uh, near to Manchester, where it's coming up, because it, it's supposed to stop at Manchester Airport, after all. What's your view on this HS2? Would you be in favour as a, a layman of axing it or keeping it? I think my view is probably that we don't have an understanding of what this means for the cost of rail travel. So from my Chester now my station into Euston, um, a return ticket is now over £300. Um, I'd really want to understand how actually bringing down the cost of rail travel and making it accessible for people. 
um, whether it's a company cost or a personal cost, it is extortionate and the service is poorly provided, unreliable and incredibly overcrowded. Uh, I, I don't personally feel that the time that is being saved on a faster rail link is as important a driver to me as the cost of the ticket price. Um, I don't think we're saving massive amounts of time, mm. uh, the journey time to get into London, but I, my concern with a project overrunning to such an extent is are we going to then try and make that cost back in incredibly high fares? Mm. And the fares are already astronomically high. It shouldn't be cheaper to drive, pay for parking in London, pay for a hotel to stay overnight than it is to get on the train. And it is, and I, that is genuinely what we tend to do when we travel now is to choose to stay. It's not just people in London. From Darlington in the northeast, it's cheaper to rent a car drive it down, hand it back, rent another car and drive back the next day. Yeah. That's it, it really is. Uh, now, I'm not the, baby. You've got other rail issues in your part of the world, haven't you? Because you've got um, the West Coast line has just gone to another franchise. Uh, well, the same franchise is, uh, has continued. Mm. Yeah. Have you Can't say had the experience of this? Uh, yeah, it's, it's dreadful. Um, the trains are cancelled. They are incredibly crowded. I my heart breaks for the staff. I have to say because and, and for the passengers. But I, you know, my experience, particularly of travelling very early in the morning, is the staff get an incredibly hard time um, because there is increasingly, I think, a lot of frustration from those of us that travel really regularly on that line and and that the very consistent customer feedback haven't been heard. So the fact that that franchise has been allowed to continue, yeah, it, it, it shakes your faith in the powers that be. Well, we'll leave that for the time being, and I'm going to find out a little bit more about Samantha's business. Now, I have to say, we were joking off air that this is probably the most middle-class product we've ever had on our Northern Business podcast. We'll flash up some photographs for viewers to see of the cushions the linens, uh, these beautifully um, uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, embroidered, embroidered. Uh, linen uh, napkins that you make. This is for uh, households who want to just give a little touch of something special. Tell us about the background to this business. So uh, Avalon, our textile business, is all made in Cheshire. So we design, print, manufacture everything here. Um, my background is from big retail, so I was very used to making product on quite long lead times. Traded big retail through COVID, through Suez. Um, but actually, I think as the online part of that business grew, what we found was that long lead time product didn't really allow us to react to consumer demands and kind of capitalize on available commercial opportunities as fast as we wanted to because we had to make quite far out predictions. So our manufacturing model has always been about kind of low MOQs, quick turnarounds, incredibly high quality product. Um, so we tend to focus on working on kind of small to medium sized independent retailers. We offer a lot of bespokeable options. So I come from family retailers. I'm a massive lover of the high street, but I also feel quite strongly that our high streets are becoming quite boring. We're seeing the same product everywhere. Um, and manufacturers have got a job to do to step up and help independent retailers really curate amazing product selection that make you want to go into town centre and pay for parking and pay for coffee and it be a really nice experience. So our business model was very much designed around uh, how do you help British businesses 
have access to products that let them compete with massive high street retailers. Uh, I think this is music to my ears. That We've spoken to a number of manufacturers on this podcast who are bringing products to the marketplace that are made in Britain that weren't traditionally. We had a manufacturer of washing machines on a few weeks ago, which have been imported for the last 15 years, and he's about to manufacture heat pumps. Uh, if you go into many high street stores and want to buy cushions for your new three-piece suite, they will not be made in Britain, will they, quite often? Now, this product, I looked online, um, um, and you're selling, uh, for example, uh, a nicely designed uh, cushion uh, for £27. And um, I've seen products like that in gift shops, so you can talk £30, £40, £50 for them. So you brought it in at a, a relatively uh, modest and affordable cost. And, of course, you're supplying it on a bespoke basis to uh, small retailers, giving them some margin. What 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 is what is where do you get the inspiration for the designs and and how do you manage to to get the uh, the sales through? Um, so it it slightly depends. So for what we do for our own website and for our kind of direct to consumer business, we design what we like. Uh, we have an amazingly creative and brilliant team, uh, and we make primarily sort of things that we would like to see in our own homes. Um, the things and often things that are very hard to source and accessible price point and um, there are a lot of people out there that are a lot more expensive than us that are importing and, and not making things here but we feel very strongly that if we hand on heart wouldn't hand over our own money for it we will charge that price out to our customers regardless of where we manufacture um on a bespoke basis it's obviously totally different and um, it depends on the nature of the customer and kind of who they're curating for so we run a service part of our business that designs bespoke we have a range of kind of textile and print designers that work with us um, to make something that's totally unique, really, really special. Some of it's incredibly out there. Some of it I love and some of it I don't. And I like making the stuff that I don't love even more in some ways. Now, you've already had two successful trade shows. I understand you're at the NEC and you've also been mm -hmm. in the, the important thing for these matters. You were in the Good Housekeeping Christmas edition. It's not the normal stuff we have on our business podcast, but this is real business. This is where it's happening in marketplaces. Yeah. So absolutely. what was the effect on those trade shows and, and, and that kind of publicity? I think the thing that came up most strongly for us um, at the Autumn Fair, which was earlier this month, was that um, the wholesale market in this country has changed a lot in reaction to the pandemic because you had wholesalers who were making a bulk of their money through their independent trading partners and that closed overnight uh, and they had to grow online. I totally get that. Um, but I think what, as we've emerged out of that pandemic, they've wanted to maintain the growth that they've seen in the online space as an individual brand and go back to selling from a wholesale perspective. And what that means for a lot of our customers is that they feel they're being taken advantage of in a way that they're being used as a store window for full price goods that are then being discounted online direct to consumer from the brand. So our model is very different in that sense because we allow retailers to create something that is just theirs. They can do that by amending our base designs or doing something totally bespokeable to them. Um, we use a lot of tech in how we print our fabric, which allows us to do these really small runs in a cost-effective way. So I think it's really, because I come from a high street retail background and I really understand the cost-based pressures to keep physical stores open and trading 
Um, our model is designed to work with that. Uh, and, I, and I think it's incumbent on those of us that work in manufacturing to make it work. Otherwise, we're not going to have the beautiful, vibrant high streets that I want to see and want to visit and want to be part of. Well, I've got to say, uh, looking at the photographs on your website, I, I was jokingly saying it was the most middle-class product on on our podcast, but it, it does look spectacular all the way you've designed it. It's very, very British, a traditional English, I would say, in, mm -hmm. rather than British, in in its look and feel. Um, um, you know, you've got tea towels draped over Argus. They, they resemble Mir William Morris style, even though it, it isn't William Morris, obviously, but it's... It, uh, it's very, very nice, and I certainly endorse it. Well, well before we move on, uh, Pintail Candles, you bought this Cumbria-based business. Tell us about that deal. Tell us about what, you, what you're selling and uh, how, how you raised the money and how is it going? Uh, so Pintail we acquired in June. So um, both of our companies are owned by our family group. Um, we've, uh, they've been trading for 30 years, and primarily the businesses are white label. So I am under heavy NDA that I can't tell you who I make for because our kind of very large high street retailers really would like us to not disclose whether okay. products are made and I totally well, understand it's to know that the high street retailers are using British made <laughs> candles so that's excellent exactly it is excellent we have the most incredible team um, a lot of them have been with us over a decade uh, our manufacturing team here is over 90% female which we're incredibly proud of they are the most talented artisans we hand pour everything we use really traditional techniques the thing that I'm actually most proud of is that we do that for a really, really accessible price point. So um, our entry-level retail price point is just over £5 for a product that's made entirely in the UK. It's made by hand. The tins that we use are forged in Kettering. Our labels are printed in Keswick. You know, we, it is an end-to-end -end UK manufactured product at a super accessible price point. And I think we have a lot of misconceptions that British-made means incredibly expensive. Um, and it doesn't have to. Well, I think that's a good thing to ram home. And by the way, I, although you're not going to tell us who the high street retailers are, and I perfectly understand that, do the high street retailers lever this made in Britain? Because I know that you are very much in favour of bragging that things are made in Britain. But do you not think that high street makes it a secondary concern? Yes, it's it's emerged in the food sector, but in other sectors, you don't often see a, a British-labelled uh, product as a a spur to buy? I think from a product perspective, we very firmly believe that the product has to be a great product in and of itself, right? You have to want to pick it up regardless of where it's made. And, and that has to be the standard that we kind of strive for in product development. What I, the conversations I have with customers most often is the misunderstanding of the commercial benefits of sourcing from the UK. So the incredibly positive impact it has on your cash flow, on your access to working capital, but also on your agility. Um, and when I talk to our biggest customers, where you know we're talking, we make upwards of half a million, three quarters of a million units a year for some of these retailers, if they need to react to a change in market condition, we can do that. Um, and we can turn that around usually in under 10 days. Um, if you're working on a five-week lead time and something changes, you want to pull a promotion or you want to put on a promotion, you want to change something, you want to react to a new trend, you can't. Um, and so I think those really commercial realities about really understanding how you can not tie up your cash and you can maximize commercial opportunities in any market are the business conversations that we need to be having about made in the UK. Um, I don't particularly like to have conversations about made in the UK that are sort of coming from an almost sympathetic standpoint, that it's something that we should do 
out of a sense of altruism. I personally feel that because I was somebody who had to leave my hometown or felt I had to leave my hometown to kind of prosper in employment. And that's not something that I want for my children's generation. Um, but I don't think we should neglect that there's really sound business and commercial reasons to me to make things here um, and that we should be taking advantage of them to grow our own economy. So we're going to leave it there. It's uh, fantastic to talk to you. And uh, Avalon Homes on the website there. And uh, the candles, can you buy direct? The pintail yeah. candles? Pintail candles. I'll look out for them. And uh, I wish you all the best. And have a great Christmas, because I saw you got some Christmas lines there as well. Now, before we go to our next feature, I just want to wrap up with you, Stephen, because you're uh, opening new offices. You mentioned in Yarm in Teesside soon. Um, and you also feel the Northeast is a good place for your consultancy, don't you? Because you want more projects here. We Well, yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot in the pipeline at the moment. I think um, we're growing. Um, we've grown from three people in 2019 when we set out to north of 20 right now. Oh, and wow, that's my, my Turnover's significantly increased, which is great. So, yeah, we're, we're really positive about working in Teesside and attracting skills back to Teesside. You know, people have had to leave the area like uh, we were just talking about there to go and find employment on big infrastructure projects. And now we've got an opportunity with what's in the pipeline to bring them back and, and help the local economy prosper. Well, Stephen and Samantha, thank you for joining me. To finalise the programme, we've got a short report now. Over to my colleague, Josh, Josh Haverkin. See who he's speaking to today and what they've got to say. Thanks, Fred. Today on the Great North Arrowhead Service, it's a wonderful charity providing life-saving support across the whole of the north of England. It receives no NHS or government funded, so the £8 million plus that each raise each year, it does so through donations to businesses and individuals for some fantastic fundraising events. I called with Tracy Wright to find out just how businesses are supporting this wonderful organisation. Uh, so my name is Tracy Wright and I am the events lead here at the Great North Ambulance Service. My role is organising fundraising events which generate vital income to help keep helicopters flying and saving lives. How much does the Air Ambulance need to raise each year and how's it going about doing it? So it costs around £8.5 million pounds to keep the Great North Ambulance Service operation each year. We are charity funders, we don't get funding um, from government and NHS. And that means that we are completely dependent on the support of the general public and companies, businesses to help support us. Uh, we do a lot of fundraising events, we do our own community fundraising, and then we get a lot of amazing support from um, organisations who support us in quite a number of ways. And how do businesses get involved in supporting the air ambulance in all kinds of different ways? Uh, there's a number of ways that companies get involved. We get a lot of companies that choose us as Charity of the Year, um, so they will do their own fundraising throughout the year for us. We get companies who take donations, they sponsor our events um, and they attend events that we have as well. And have you got any events coming up that you'd like to talk about and how maybe people can get involved? We certainly do. Um, our flagship event is our annual ball. We're actually holding a team this year. We cover um, 8,000 square miles across the whole of the north. So to ensure that we've got an event close to everybody, we've got our ball taking place on 20th October, which is at the Hilton Gate to Newcastle. And then we've got that repeated again all over the whole state of Carlisle on the 10th of November. It's an amazing night out. You get a welcome drink on arrival, three course dinner, live entertainment and dancing till late. It's a brilliant evening. It's our annual ball with a circus twist. So we've got a bit of circus theming going on. There'll be some circus themed fundraising on the night and some circus entertainment. We're really excited to reveal what we've got coming up. And have any businesses um, got involved so far with the ball and in what kind of work? Evolved. We've got companies who are sponsoring us, um, which helps to cover the costs, meaning that even more is raised on the evening. And we've got a lot of companies who are coming along. 
Some use it to um, have their Christmas night out. Some use it for staffy board and some use it to engage their clients. So, just like so if I want to come to the ball, how do I go about getting a ticket and how many are left? Uh, so we are over two thirds of the way to big capacity in the event. Um, you can book via our website or you can contact us um, at our events at genius.co.uk email address. We'd love to see you there. Thanks, Josh. Now, jo Josh Avakin will be out and about meeting other people in the next uh, few weeks, and uh, uh, we'll look forward to hearing his reports. Now, I won't be here next week on the Northern Business Podcast, uh, but I'll be here the week after. Now, if you want to join us as a guest on this podcast, please tag me in on LinkedIn, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. The more we hear from businesses in the north of England, the more we can promote the services that everyone has to offer. So, um, Josh, join us next time on the Northern Business Podcast. I'll be back on the 11th of uh, October. Uh, don't miss an episode by liking, rating or subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.